0: I have started and exited multiple companies. I am an avid investor in early stage companies. I advise some of the hottest startups and have worked with many of the top tech companies across numerous industries. I'm a software developer by trade, but I also have an MBA from Duke University. I seek out companies who defy conventional wisdom to drive innovation in any industry. And in this podcast, I interview the founders of those companies for you. Hello, folks, and welcome to the podcast. I'm joined today by Rami Sarageldin. Did I say that correctly, Rami? Close enough, yeah. Close enough, okay. (laughs) Co-founder and CEO of HoneyFi. Uh, They're an innovative personal financial management tool. Uh, I met Rami a year or so ago and have watched him grind out the product and growth. I'm seeing the growth on his his, uh, monthly uh, newsletter, and I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing and telling his story. Rami, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Great. So can you explain uh, for the listeners what HoneyFi is? Yeah. HoneyFi is a service to help couples manage their finances together. We like to jokingly say it's the best way to save your relationship. (laughs) Um, I like that. (laughs) How long into the journey did you come up with that tag? <laughs> I've been workshopping it for, okay. for a couple of years. <laughs> um, but really what we try and do is help couples as their relationship evolves, um, manage through the different financial challenges that come. So I think early on in your relationship, you've moved in together. Today's day and age, you're probably not married, but you're trying to figure out rent, utilities, groceries, household expenses, but you haven't merged any of your finances. So we can help with household budgeting, tracking your bills and spending. And then on up to uh, major life events, you're getting married, you're about to have kids, we help you work together to reach those goals, whether it's uh, saving for that down payment, or planning your long term retirement. So the idea is, you know, as your relationship evolves, HoneyFi moves with you and, and can help you through those. That, that's awesome. Um, uh, uh, as you were describing that and kind of
0: growing with them, I, I remember reading about car companies, try to do that. But they have to do it with different models of cars. So you have a Civic, and then you can graduate to the Accord, and then maybe you go to an Acura. Um, I take it you don't have to make a different app for every single phase of the life.
1: (laughs) We don't, we don't. But it's interesting you say that, because that's actually sort of one of the analogies we use, which is, you know, banking used to be, and personal financial management used to be sort of one size fits all. You know, everybody gets a Corolla, or everybody Mm -hmm. gets a Camry, which, okay, most people buy a Camry, to be fair. But We realized there was an opportunity to build an experience focused on couples and young families and the challenges that they face, because it's very, very different than, say, somebody just out of college who's trying to figure out, you know, how how much money can I go out for tonight? Uh, Or somebody who's retiring and trying to figure out how do they manage their cash flow that they have. So while we think for families and couples, there's a broad range in one app, we do think there are other life stages that require their own capabilities.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting to me. I think that even if you just had a coaching practice for people, because I I meet a lot of people and I talk to them about, well, what are you guys doing? Because in in my case, we just we went straight to one bank account. Mm -hmm. And it was just natural to me that one of us would just pay all the bills and we don't keep track of anything. It's just I mean, we keep track of it kind of on the side to make sure we're budgeting. But a lot and I was shocked as as, um, as I talked to more and more people that, they're, that they don't all work that way
1: um, yeah in fact uh, two thirds of today's couples don't fully merge their finances even after marriage so it's become sort of the new normal if you will Wow, two-thirds. Yeah, so you're special. You're unique.
0: <laughs> In more ways than one, please. Fair enough.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, that's, that's great. I, I hope we get to dig into that because I've heard you talk about some of the different ways that people use the tool, and I think yeah. it's, it's, it's fascinating. So, but before we do that, can you just talk a little bit about your history and what you
1: were doing prior to HoneyFy? For sure. So I've had, a would say, an interesting career in that I've worked for uh, the state of North Carolina. I've worked for Fortune 50, or two Fortune 50 companies in Bank of America and Ernst & Young, uh, and I've worked for startups. And so I've, uh, I jokingly say, it took me a long time to figure out what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wasn't one of these people that sort of came out of college or, and said, you know what, I'm going to be this. Um, so I, I, you know, I learned a, a little bit of uh, you know, lessons at each one of those places. So In the government, I learned they're very slow, (laughs) very inefficient, uh, lots of opportunities to improve, but the people are actually very motivated to do the things that they're there for, usually there for a good reason. Um, At Bank of America, it was a great experience to understand financial services. I did the MBA leadership development program there, which got me to move around the different parts of the consumer bank, uh, understand deposits, credit cards, mortgages, um, how they work, how they make money. And then in Ernst Young, it was a great opportunity to start up a practice from the ground up, uh, helped build their finan- digital financial services practice, and got to learn a lot about how banks globally work. Now we're both of those were in Charlotte.
0: Then I take in or
1: all, all over. So primarily, uh, I started in America here in Charlotte, uh, but they actually moved me around. So I was in um, the LA area. Uh, so if you know LA, I'll say uh, we were in Calabasas. Or excuse me, uh, we were in uh, Simi Valley. Okay. <laughs> if you don't know LA, I will say LA. Okay. Um You know, worked on the countrywide acquisition. Was in Chicago for LaSalle, um, and then Ernst and Young uh, moved up to New York uh, as part of that. Interesting. Very interesting. Um,
0: Yeah, hopefully we can talk a little bit more about that experience because I I always love and my listeners always love hearing about some of the the things that you learn at a bank. But you you mentioned also working for a startup. Um, How did how did that come about?
1: Yeah, so the the startup was uh, called uh, Movin. It was one of the first neobanks. So if you've heard of Vero or Simple or Chime, I started around the same time. And it came actually out of a chance meeting uh, with uh, one of my now wife's uh, former colleagues. Um, got together with some of the founders, and, and they were telling me about the idea for starting a new bank and kind of rebuilding it from the ground up. And I sort of said, sure, sure, that sounds interesting. Because <laughs> back in you know, 2010, 2011, that was sort of just sort of a thing people said, but nobody actually could do it um they got a little bit of funding together and i joined as one of their first employees
0: now did they get a bank charter to do that or did they do a money transmitter license or how does that work
1: no um actually so they essentially used something called the program manager approach so um, they partnered with a bank that had a prepaid card and essentially they became the program manager which was a, a contract that was built more for marketing purposes but um, a lot of the neobanks used it as the model after us to essentially use it as a way to get a charter without having to get a charter. <laughs> <laughs> it, that's uh,
0: interesting because I I had looked at a business called Modular in the UK, mm-hmm. and they're the uh, they're basically an API that allows for I don't know if you call them challenger banks or what mm-hmm. you'd call them, but mobile mobile first banking experiences. And Revolut is heavily built on top of that API, mm-hmm. and it, it was in, it's interesting to me because the virtual debit card was used as the rail and that I think they've since evolved and they actually can create accounts at the bank of England now mm-hmm. um, under under the hood. But that, that's a fascinating concept to me. And I think a lot of the innovation in FinTech is, is being unlocked by that. Is that the reason that we're seeing these open banking APIs becoming so, so prevalent or is there something else that's driving that?
1: Yeah, I think what's interesting. So the UK is actually, I'd say more advanced than us when it comes to open banking for sure. And when it comes to, Uh, state-sponsored charter. So they've uh, created what they call the FinTech Charter, which essentially lowers somewhat lowers the requirement um, to get a license to be able to do a limited set of things, so open deposit accounts or current accounts in their terms. I think what's driving it, though, is the same thing that we're seeing here, which is the consumer demand for more varied and more uh, robust solutions that meet their needs. The banks were not very innovative and the, the regulators there feel that open banking is a way to push them to be more uh, creative or to allow other entrants in,
0: right? Yeah, so Google can build a banking experience or Apple. That's right. If they wanted a headache.
1: Which they're seeming to get into. But exactly, I think it's to allow the big tech companies in, but... A, but especially in the UK, it's to allow new entrance uh, you know, startups and fintechs that it lowers the hurdle. Because to get a charter, is you know, right, it's extremely time-consuming process in this country. What, and you have
0: to get 50 of them if you want to transact in 50 states, right? Or I, I guess they changed it so that you could get a national...
1: Right. You can get a national charter, but it's also just the the liquidity requirements uh, need an incredible amount of capital just to be able to apply for the license to show that you can handle it. And then you go through two to three years, if not more. I mean, we saw recently, um, I believe it was um, SoFi that just got their their charter. I mean, they applied for that almost four or five years ago. <laughs> and so uh, for most, most startups, they just don't have that time frame to do that, right? So so not to drill
0: into, into these debit cards, but that seems to be a good way to onboard onto this. How did that innovation come about? Do you know the backstory? How, how did people figure out that, hey, I can use these virtual debit cards? Because if I understand correctly, that's a lot of what Avid Exchange is built on top of as well, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I'm not as familiar with Avid and what mm-hmm. they built on, but I could, from, a, from the prepaid side, um, The essentially it was the ability to take, was already there, a marketing, affiliate marketing relationship, and then the banks then pushed more of the customer relationship onto the program managers, in this case, the startups. And so it allowed you to get all of the products that you wanted, So, the, or excuse me, the capabilities you wanted, to be able to, to buy things at a store or online, to um, deposit checks and pay bills, without having to um, be regulated yourself, you could essentially Borrow the regulations from the from the partner bank from the charter bank. I think what's interesting today is you're seeing so many banking as a service opportunities come up that make that turnkey. When we started at MoveIn, it was literally a, you know a six to eight month process just to negotiate the type of contract because it had never really been done before to the degree we were doing. Whereas today, you can go to Camber or you can go to uh, Synapse and basically within a few months be up and running. Um, so the hurdle is is way lower now, <laughs> um, but I think you're starting to see that it's becoming such so much more commoditized that now um, some companies are struggling to differentiate because they, they all thought the differentiation was the product. Like, hey, we can now offer a debit card. Well, now anyone can. So yeah. why is that special? <laughs> That's great, though.
0: That's how you drive innovation. Totally, right,
1: Tom. Totally. You you push things further. You're
0: you further and further commoditize things. That's awesome to see. I mean, how. Yeah. If, if if you're thinking about a journey, because as somebody who's been a long time financial services practitioner, you know, if you're thinking about a, a, a journey that we are on in terms of driving innovation in the fintech space, how far along do you think we are now? You know, <laughs> you know, if, if, if the journey is a human lifetime, how old are we right now?
1: And I'm, I'm, I'm probably
0: asking that in a weird way. No, but, no, I understand. Yeah. yeah.
1: It, you know, if you listen to the FinTech Insider guys, it's 1% there, right? Wow. Um, so I guess, you know, uh, still in the womb, I guess, <laughs> is using using that uh, human lifetime. I think we're a little bit more advanced than that. I think you're starting to see that, you know, I kind of judge it by, well, what do the incumbents offer, right? So if I can go to B of A and, and Wells and, and sort of get what used to be innovative, and it's now table stakes, um, things like your generic budgeting or your bill pay and kind of, online, mobile, different channels. But I think where we're going is more of the automation, meaning the ability for people not to have to make those decisions. Today, it's still very self-serve. And to use a buzzword, which I promised I wouldn't, but I guess you know, some of the AI capabilities where, like in other spaces, we, we let Spotify choose our next song. Why not let you know, your financial app choose your next uh, purchase decision or your next investment decision?
0: Um, You're speaking my language. Chris Hart and I, before we built Level, we built a tool called Reward Summit. Yeah. And the idea yeah. was that eventually we wanted to integrate it with a wallet where you swipe and you don't even pick your card. It just picks it for you automatically. Bingo, exactly. Unfortunately for us, Chris probably knew it. I didn't, um, but Chris probably knew it because of his banking background. But that the banks don't want that. They want top of wallet <laughs> behavior. <laughs>
1: that's true, that's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, what do you think? I, I think we're sort of in that preteen, you know, puberty stage. Our voice is changing. (laughs) Yeah, no,
0: I I think I agree with you. I think we're just starting to figure out what we can do with it. And I think, I think things like open banking, I think, um, for me personally, one of the first projects Chris and I did at, uh, at level was with the clearing house to build a multi-issuer vault and, um, we des- We helped them design it through a series of joint application development sessions with a bunch of banks and there w- and there was no like we were we were trying to guess how this tokenization was going to work because nobody had defined a standard and once we got it to a point where it was pretty well ready to build Apple and Visa. And announced the EMVCo spec for tokenization. <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of frustrating because we had to redo uh, you know a lot of what we did, but sure. it was it was really cool to see that kind of from the inside because having one player like Apple who can come in and just drive the standard, yes, it helps Apple, but it helps drive real innovation. And I think the partnering between companies like Apple and Google and Uber and Airbnb all of these companies getting into payment processing and driving a better customer experience is really exciting for me to see. I don't know that I would have ever appreciated it until working with with guys like Chris and Scott Harkey, who, whom we both yeah. know. Um, but it's really, now that I've seen kind of that insider's view of it, I, I'm i really excited. I'm with you, though. I think we're just starting to scratch the surface. I think the, the, the innovations that are going to come, um, I don't think we can even vision what, where, where we're gonna be five to ten years from now because it just feels like we've hit kind of escape velocity.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I that I think is interesting you mentioned about the payments pieces. I feel like payments is always the furthest along. So maybe they're kind of late teens in payments where um, you know you've seen players like Apple and Google get in and, and the wallets from the different ones. So it, it's always interesting to see wherever payments goes soon the other capabilities, whether it's lending or or um, deposits or you know, investments will soon. I was going to say even
0: further order things like insurance, right? Insurance. Exactly. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. When you think about the implications of ride sharing, self-driving cars, there's a lot of innovation that has to happen to make the self-driving cars, right? But there's also all of these ancillary industries that have to keep up. And, and how do you ensure an Uber or how do you insure a car that's owned by Ford, but it's being split between fifty different people who take it and yeah. and who, who who takes the liability and the, the, to me there's there's all sorts of things like that in the financial services space that are that are really interesting to
1: see play out. Absolutely. I mean it'd be interesting to see too how the government regulation comes in because that's always one of the things that people who come from outside of financial services when they first come into financial services unless it's healthcare, they really have no idea how much that impacts what you can do or or the way you approach a problem because the regulators sort of can make or break your business based on a rule or a oh, consent D- order. Right? D- Durbin, right?
0: Like that changed all of the economics of interchange um, overnight. Right? O- overnight, <laughs> and and it's scary because do I really think Dick Durbin understood the intricacies of interchange? And no, no offense to him, but it's any of any of these uh, politicians or lawmakers.
1: How how could you possibly understand the downstream effects? No, absolutely and also whether it's actually going to do what you think it's going to do you know a lot of people would argue that it actually helped the big banks because you know if potentially if you were a merchant and you knew that this credit union was going to charge you uh, 150 basis points of interchange on a debit card but the the big bank was only going to charge you 25 cents because of Durban well, which one do you want them to go to yeah. right <laughs> so there's sort of these like weird adverse impacts that uh, you might not have even thought of oh, it. It's I don't know how we got on this tangent. <laughs> I, th- I think we're going to get on a few, but I'm going to
0: take it even a step further. <laughs> so I, every time I go to a gas station, besides reaching for the hand sanitizer these days, <laughs> I'm amazed at the checkout process, because if you think about Amazon or any e-commerce experience, they make it as frictionless as possible because they don't want you to, ab- to abandon your cart. Mm-hmm. And in the gas station the amount, the length that they go to to try to steer you towards debit is unimaginable to me. <laughs> and, <laughs> but, but again, that's arguably a result of Durbin, right? It's it's the interchange fees that sure. the, the, that the merchant is is paying, and
1: they're willing to sacrifice customer experience uh, to try and capture that interchange. Well, it's been happening. I and mean, when I lived in New York, um, you know, it was happening in the bodegas. It's a minimum ten dollars to use a card. Didn't matter what card, yeah. And you're like, how is this possible? <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, but they know their their numbers and, and the economics of their business. You're buying a I don't know a dollar two dollar candy bar, and paying that's their margins maybe ten cents on that. Like you know, yeah, makes a big difference. Uh, so now now the gas stations are catching up to the bodegas. So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm still amazed that. I'm just amazed at that they still do MagStripe largely, too. I, I just can't imagine. I wonder where the regulation has to go to really drive adoption. of Because they need to just get rid of the MagStripe, in my estimation, and go to EMV. As long as
1: you have that MagStripe, it's a massive security and privacy yeah. hurdle, right? <laughs> Trust me, my, my wife's from from Sweden and not a day goes by whenever she talks about how far behind we are here. So, you know, whether it's chip and pin or or checks, God forbid, we talk about checks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but Magstripe's another, right? She's like, why am I signing? Like, who's looking at this? Yeah. I was like, just sign it, move on. Oh, well, I, every time I come back
0: from overseas travel and have the dining experience, the dining payment experience, I'm like, this is awful. It's the mm-hmm. most awkward thing they hand me my bill, they walk away. <laughs> I hand them a credit card, they walk away, <laughs> they bring it back and sign it. And I'm like, just bring me a machine and let me punch it in. And, and no tip, no, you know, the, the, there's just pay, the payment experience. I think traveling internationally is so it's, it, it's, it's, so completely different. And until I started traveling internationally, I had no appreciation for how far behind we are. Yeah, it's a different world. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, okay, so back to moving because I think that's what got us there. So, yep. yeah. so, so you 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 go and, and help build this program management platform. Um, how
1: long were you with moving? So I was with moving for about four years. To um, mm-hmm. so helped grow the business in the U.S. from the ground up. Signed our bank partnership deals. Launched our first version of the app and the and the associated products. Um, actually, hired my co-founder, Joe Stanish, co-founder at HoneyFi, uh-huh. uh, Joe Stanish, to run our U.S. business, and I focused more on our international partnerships. Um, so, moving was a bit, uh, we like to say, schizophrenic in that in the U.S., we were direct-to-consumer, and outside the U.S., we were an enterprise business. So okay. We did deals with TD in Canada, Westpac in New Zealand, and a couple others. And it was interesting because what we found is, um, while we were building something unique in the U.S. with our experience around financial health or financial wellness being at the core of the experience because our innovation wasn't um when you really get down to it wasn't so much the digital or onboarding and mobile banking it was the fact that at moving financial health was at the core and that was unique and when we started talking to other banks they were really interested in that they said look this can help differentiate our product and can help our customers do better Um, so were you white labeling products for the banks at that point we were yeah so internationally we white label the products in some markets we We're in conversations to launch a new de novo bank um, with a co-brand, but at the end of the day, what we realized is by partnering, we could grow significantly faster, especially internationally because of the complex regulations. You know, Canada, very, very different than the U.S. (laughs) from a regulation standpoint. Um, Same for Australia, New Zealand, wherever you name it. Absolutely. So... um
0: so at some point you leave moving and i want to talk about that transition i'm just curious where is moving
1: right now yeah they're still still doing well um i think they've raised i want to say their d round now from folks including softbank um and you know continuing to, I, I think they're at like 5 million users or something across the oh, wow. their partners. So things are going well. Hopefully hopefully there's an exit in the future, uh, as I'd like my paper to be worth something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely, but that had to be a great experience. How, what size were they when you joined?
1: So I was employee number five, basically. So wow. um, I, I like to say it's that sweet spot of early enough to uh, take all the risks, but not be a founder. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's, it's funny you mention that. I tell a lot of people, a lot of people talk to me and they're like,
0: oh, I want to go start a company. I've got this idea. I keep thinking about it. And, and I tell them, okay, your idea is probably good, but most ideas are good. It's, uh, that's not the hard part, right? The, the, the hard part is the execution and mm-hmm. all the different things that are going to get thrown at you. And I think most people shouldn't jump right into a startup. There are some people who are ready to go on sure. day one. Alex from 2U Laundry was on my podcast. That was a guy who was born ready to go start sure. a company. Okay. That's very rare. That wasn't me. That isn't most people. It <laughs> wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I tell people, look, if you can find, and I even think going as early as you did is, is hard for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, in your case, I think because of the financial services expertise, and the scale that you had been operating and the people that you went into business with, it probably was a very good decision. But a lot of times people join as employee number five and a year later they're, they're, they're on the streets either because <laughs> the company has gone under or sure, it's sure. just way more than they thought it was. I think if people want to get involved in startups, they should go find a D round funded or a C round funded company where you might not be working directly with the founder but you're not too many levels away from the founder and there's very little risk in doing that and you're not going to have to do a hundred different things but you can see the people who had to do it and what the fruits of their labor are um again it's it's um i mean there's no one size fits all answer there but i do think you're right like coming in as employee number five prepares you to 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 go start something so can you maybe talk about how you made that transition
1: No, I mean, I totally agree. I I think what I always tell people is, you know, I I would actually either say you either start a company when you're in college and you have nothing to lose. (laughs) Alex. (laughs) Well, like Alex. And, And that's the thing, like Alex... Uh, I mean, I'm sure you talked about this on podcast, but this wasn't his first time running yeah. running a business, and you know he'd run this type of business before, right? Yeah, he uh, bought
0: it. He bought an on-campus delivery service and exactly. sold it. Um, and, and I'm f- guessing that business has been bought and sold
1: every four years. I'm sure, <laughs> right? It's uh, in Wake Forest lore, and I'm a Wake alum, so yeah, okay. I'm proud of it. <laughs> um, but you know, I think for me, I actually, you know took a very long circuitous journey to getting to, <laughs> to, to, to working for startups. And I, uh, in, when I look back, you know, Rami at 25 would not have been able to do the job that I did because I didn't have the experience in the banking industry and, 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 and honestly, just a little bit of the maturity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, I totally agree. Like, If you can go work for a, a Series C or Series D funded startup where they're still nimble enough and are willing to give people a chance to learn on the job.
0: Yeah. Here in um, Charlotte, that would be Passport or it would, would have been Map Anything prior to the acquisition. Yeah. It would be Avid, Avid. Exchange. Yeah. Red Ventures is probably a little bit further along, but but, but it's those type of companies. Yeah.
1: No, totally. And, and there'll be more coming soon, right? Stratify. Stratified, yeah. Ecos. Yeah. And to uh, you at some point. To you at some point. Um, and it's a great opportunity to learn. I think that's one of the beauties of, of startups is I learned more in the three and a half years there. And I've learned more when I was starting honeyfies than I did in the previous eight, and 10 years of working. I won't say how old I am, but, <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's funny because we hired a lot of people at moving, uh, in our, in our operations area, right out of college and, they had no idea how lucky they were that they could see senior leadership that closely. They had no idea that was they had an idea that they could just like talk to somebody about it in the C-suite and they might actually take it. You know, if I was at B of A, even if I ran into, um, you know. Well, Brian know. has his own elevator. director right well, Brian is to the floor, a, <laughs> right, I mean. Well, totally, well, the, I have a funny Brian story, actually, but. You know, we would actually see him at, um, gosh, when I lived in Uptown. What's the, there's a wine store or wine shop in Uptown in... um, Like on 8th Street there, 7th Street? It's it's in a condo building. uh, Okay. But I can't remember what it is. He has a condo in in that building and he would go down to that store. And it would always be the night before quarterly earnings. And (laughs) he would be sitting there with his feet propped up drinking a beer. (laughs) That's awesome. And, I would, and then the next day, you'd see earnings for good. And then if you didn't see them there, you knew they weren't going to be good. But anyway, you know, you couldn't just go to Brian and be like, "Hey, I have a great idea." You yeah. know,
0: for, for for obvious reasons. For too. obvious reasons, yeah. right?
1: Like I'm sure there were also security in the wings. So if we even approached, it. Like, yeah. um, but um, I, I do think though, one thing that I will say from from a honey perspective is. You know, with, we have three young kids and starting a company then is, is not the best time and, you know, there's no great time but you have a lot more responsibility and it, it makes you think about the decisions you're making a lot harder it can motivate you for sure but that's sort of the balance I'd say you don't want to be too late when you start your business, that you have too many more responsibilities.
0: Yeah, on there. I agree. It's it's tough to stick that landing, though. Um, it's 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 really tough. Sometimes you wait a little too long. Sometimes you go too early. I think, <laughs> I think the good news is if you go too early, though, there's now a culture of failure isn't the end of life for you. You can fail, and you can come back, and you can fail, and you can cool. come back. And that's been the biggest cultural shift in Charlotte that I've seen since I started traveling here in 2004, and then moved here in 05. Is that the culture has 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 shifted towards ones where we embrace failure. In fact, Terry Cox from um, formerly the Big Council brought in a uh, a conference called FailCon, oh. <laughs> and it was they, it was started by a lady in San Francisco, yeah, and um, literally just got got successful business people to get up and talk about not their success story, but their failures and to celebrate it. And I think that that's a, that, that's huge. why I, I think I'd err on the side of starting too soon, fail, learn some lessons. But again, if you can get there and work with somebody who's already figured it out, I think that's the, the easiest path to,
1: to, to, to readying yourself. Absolutely. And not only that, but you build the network, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the biggest challenge a lot of people face, especially in Charlotte, it's around fundraising, right? I mean, yep. if you can be part of a successful company that has fundraised, then guess what? Those executives are going to help you, right? Make those connections. But about the failure piece, it's actually something when um, when we talk to banks that is the biggest inhibitor, I think, to their innovation is there, maybe it's changing now, but for sure there's not a culture of accepting failure and embracing failure. Yep. Right? I, you look at the tech companies, and it's almost a badge of honor. Like, I was on this failed product. I was on this failed product. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's because you tried something new. And sometimes it works and great. And sometimes it doesn't and it doesn't. But you know, I, I always joke, like, I don't know the answer, but I'd love to see the guy who created the Fire Phone at Amazon. My gut tells me he still has a job. Absolutely. Right? The, the equivalent <laughs> at, at a bank you know, who created the equivalent of a Fire Phone that was pretty much a failure at yeah. a pretty epic scale. Um, probably would not have a job, right? And and or in the military, you think about where failure can't happen, right? No, totally. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah, it's a very different uh, different approach, and I think that's the biggest cultural challenge. And it's interesting and good to see that you're seeing that shift in Charlotte because that means more people are going to be willing to take that risk, and more people are going to be willing to join startups who are taking that risk already. You know, I'm curious when you were you know, starting your business when you were hiring folks, right? I imagine you were probably pulling from a great talent pool that we have here in Charlotte, but they're relatively risk averse. Outpool. and how do you convince them that, hey, this this can be a big thing, right? It's okay.
0: Yeah, well, there's there's two stories I like to tell people about that. One is when I first moved here with a company called Amentra that we sold to Red Hat later, um, I remember I, I, I knew nothing about banking. I, I didn't even realize Charlotte was a banking town, <laughs> but I, I started interviewing a bunch of people from the banks, and they would tell me, I don't know, this is a really risky job. <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, so hold on a second. <laughs> Uh first of all there is Wells Fargo could lay off 20,000 people tomorrow. Any big bank routinely makes big layoffs. I'm like that's not job security. Job security doesn't come from your employer. Job security comes from your skill set. And what I can tell you is that number 1 we pro, we've never done a layoff and mentor um, to this day, even under Red Hat's leadership, has never done a layoff, mm-hmm. fired people, but no, no layoffs. Sure. But the bigger thing is, you're going to work on relevant projects that that are that where there are your skill sets are transferable. Um, and I don't know that people really bought that. <laughs> 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 I think a couple did, but but I do think that that's true. But the uh, the other funny story, or not funny story, but I think instructive story is with level, Chris and I were taking a lot of risks and trying a lot of different mm-hmm. things. And one of the sources of friction, and a failure of my leadership early on at level was, I wasn't necess- I didn't communicate to people that look, we're trying 10 things, because all we need is four of them to work. Mm-hmm. And what would happen is we would assign tasks to people, and they would fail. And it, it inevitably happens. If you're pushing the boundaries, you're going to fail. For sure. And guys who were leading guys and gals who were leading successful projects would get really frustrated with me. Why didn't you fire that person? (laughs) And I finally sat down and explained it. Like we need to be able to take on, we take a portfolio approach to risk. Some things work, some don't. Mm -hmm. The minute you fire somebody for failing, guess what? They're not raising their hand for any project that could fail. And as a CEO, you need, you need people to be willing to go out Mm -hmm. and, and try things and fail. And I think that it was really, until I started articulating it that way to people, it was a, it was a big source of, 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 um, you know, of of just, um, people becoming very upset and looking at one another and not thinking of each other as, as, as teammates. But I think it needs to be communicated from senior leadership that, Hey, we're taking risks and and part of risk that we're going to fail and we're not going to punish you. You fail twice on the same,
1: (laughs) same mistake. (laughs) We might punish you. Sure. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's like structural failing, like, because you you don't put the right effort into it or you don't run the project the right way, but then there's just idea failing and that can happen. Right. And, And, should happen if you're as you said pushing the envelope right. Yep, absolutely.
0: So so returning to the the HoneyFi product, what was the number one use case you thought you were going to solve when you when you when you were thinking about the product and building
1: it? Yeah. Um what's interesting is when we started HoneyFi, I think we were very focused on sort of the, the nuts and bolts and and math aspect of uh financial management. So what's your budget look like, and and so on. And what we realized as we started to grow and we started talking to more and more customers, it was more about the social dynamics between the two of them. We're solving a very uh, emotional problem. Money, especially in a relationship, can be very emotional and very stressful. And so then we realized, okay, well, the the way we need to start to build out the product, the way we need to build out the features and capabilities should be to alleviate that, right? Um, And that's where we started to push more into the the conversational aspect of, of money within HoneyFi. So, you know, very high level things like comments and transactions, you know, it sounds very simple, but it's actually a really powerful way for couples to communicate with each other in the moment about finances in a, in a dedicated stream versus their text messages about, uh, groceries and diapers and, you know, bills <laughs> or maybe not bills, but you know, something else. Um, and so I think once we realized that our, our engagement started to go up, our, our growth started to go up because we are actually solving the core problem, which wasn't the numbers. It was the emotional aspect of it. It's funny
0: that you mentioned that it's not the same thing at all, but it's related. It's, occasionally I'll make a payment or request a payment on Venmo and I'll get lost just scrolling through, just seeing <laughs> all the payments that are made and trying to decipher what the comment or the or the emoji, the emoji. really means.
1: <laughs> For sure, yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, very funny. I, I feel like most of the most of the payments on there are splitting tabs or paying babysitters. But yeah, that's that's about it. <laughs> and, and I'm guessing there's some illegal transactions on there too. But, but a green leaf emojis. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs>
1: <gasps> oh just pretty bold yeah, yeah. Was <laughs> oh exactly there's <laughs> a recorded transaction
0: <laughs> yeah. well you you couldn't imagine that you know, again not to go on a tangent but you couldn't imagine that open the level of openness even 10 15 years ago um yeah i yeah. just wonder where privacy goes in 10 years because now you're getting into generations that will never have known privacy mm-hmm. and don't and and it, it becomes a question of do we, do we get to a point where nobody even cares about privacy because it I think people care about privacy to an extent but the amount of data that people are willing to share now is just mind-boggling compared to what
1: what it used to be you're not sharing anything outside the boundaries though it's just within so, the family yeah just within the family in fact our our business model is is by design uh, subscription so that we're not having to sell your data to make money we'll bring in trusted partners and and you opt in it's like hey you know here's a partner that i think can help you and if you choose to opt in great you connect and so on but Um, I want to get, get into that for a second. Actually, that that raises an interesting point.
0: So do you monetize in that case by a referral model? And are you ever tempted to build, build the underpinning so that you can actually do those transactions yourself? Or do you just hand it over? So I'm imagining, Hey, you can get a credit card here. Let me Mm -hmm. like, is that the type of thing where you'll do an affiliate transaction where, Hey, you can apply for a
1: discover card or a deposit
0: account or a CD or,
1: yeah, so today um, we don't necessarily do credit card referrals. Mm-hmm. We'll be focused more on life events. So um, think life insurance, um, okay. uh, estate planning, 529s in the case where you're having a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done some referrals for um, uh, bill reduction services. So we've partnered with a company that can um, help reduce your um, utility bills. So I think uh, cable company, internet, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um We've stayed away for right now from credit cards just because we find most of our customers have enough credit cards. <laughs> but over, it doesn't mean we're against credit cards. Credit cards can be actually really valuable for managing. Chris and I wanted to sell you 10 credit cards I, so we could optimize them.
0: I know, I know. <laughs> um,
1: but there's, you know, again, credit cards are great if you can manage your cash flow appropriately and can mm-hmm. help you actually. So um, I think it's one of those that as we find partners that we vet and we think are trusted, we'll put them in front of you if it makes sense. But that's not the core of our business model right now. The focus is on subscriptions and then we, we do make some money through partnerships with our deposit accounts and things like that. So. Very cool. Um, what type of progress have you
0: have you seen? And I'm thinking about what are key milestones along the way? Where do you, how do you measure that? And what are you looking to do over the next one, three, five years?
1: Yeah, for sure. So we obviously track a lot of things. Growth is an important one. We... Um, we also track things like our onboarding funnel, right? So uh, 35% of people go from our 30-day trial to paid, which is really incredible. It says, hey, within That's amazing. 30 days, you feel, hey, this is worth paying. Do, do you have any stats? Because I, tra- I was
0: advising a friend of mine who's building an app, and, and, and I was advising him, you you need to think about Somebody downloads your app and doesn't know anything about it. How do I get them to the point where they give me data? Because he he did the typical, Mm. what I would call big banker thing, which is create create a huge sign-up process that you have to go through everything (laughs) before you start seeing any value. And I'm not making fun of him. That's how Chris and I built Reward Summit until we learned about onboarding. Do you have any metrics around how many people download it and never get onboarded?
1: We do. I mean, it varies because we've been... And not specific metrics. No, 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 totally. Yeah, I mean in in financial services is obviously very different than other other markets, right? So if you're downloading a a, a game or like a planning app or something like that where the the type of data you're collecting is very light, meaning it's name, email address and I don't know, you know, your favorite food or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's very different than hey, I need your name, email address and your bank account connection and social security number. And <laughs> <laughs> um so there's you know, financial services funnel metrics are are very different. Um if you're seeing 5 to 10% from download to finishing onboarding you're, in financial services, you're doing pretty well. Okay. Right? Um, we're, we're further than that, which we're proud of, and we're constantly optimizing our funnel to make that better. Um, but it's a balance. right? We, we have a rule where essentially any data we collect from you, we're collecting and want to give something back to you. Yeah. And In my experience, customers are okay with that exchange. Collecting data just to collect data when there's no output on the other end There's no reason. Yeah. Well, the first first two versions
0: of Reward Summit, you'd you'd come in, you'd have to give us your name, your address. (laughs) It might not have been address, but and then we started asking you for your credit cards. And what we learned was that most people don't even know which credit card they've got. I have a Discover card, but is it an It or is it a More? And and, what's um, the rate? yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And um, and and. And we, we saw a lot. I mean, the first few, first few hundred people who downloaded it were friends and family, and we just made them do it. Yeah, but but yeah. once we started getting to where people were downloading it, what we saw was that nobody would tell us anything. Even if they knew their credit cards, they, they wouldn't. So we, we hired a UNCC student. Um, to He was an Apple Design Award winner. And he came in and he said, look, what you need to do is don't ask them anything. So what we so if you think about what our onboarding process was, you've downloaded my app, mm-hmm. you, you're going to type in your name, you're going to type in everything you need, you're going to pick your credit cards, and then we had a big menu that had six buttons on it. And if I'm at a store, <laughs> I press at store. And then it would pop up and list all the stores around you, and if you pick the store that you're at, then it would say, okay, use this credit card that's yours. And that's a logical enough workflow, but what Jeremy ended up designing for us was, I'm going to... I'm going to immediately assume is the minute you turn this app on, I'm going to find out what store you're closest to. Yeah, And I, it's just going to say, here's Best Buy. And then I don't know anything about you. I don't know your credit cards, but I know that there are 2,000 different credit cards out there and I'm going to show them in order of what the three best ones are. Yeah. And then you can click on the credit card and it flips over and says apply for it. Or I already have this card. Yeah, and yeah. add it to your wallet. And then we would ask you, okay, you've just added a credit card What's your name? What's your email address? Create a password. And if you think about that flow, I've now given you some value. Before. I've explained before. exactly what the app is. Maybe you aren't at Best Buy, but the minute you download it, like, oh, Best Buy, oh, I should use a Best Buy card. Oh, cool. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's just it's we're doing the exact same thing that we were doing before, but now we flip the order of onboarding to show you some value before you ask for anything. I think the best onboarding processes I've seen are LinkedIn and, and Groupon. They both just get your. They get you to give just enough data, and then they show you how your progress. LinkedIn even has like 80%. Here's yeah, some suggestions yeah. on how. That's onboarding. They view onboarding as a lifetime process. Um, so anyways,
1: I didn't mean to get on no, on, no. on the tangent there. but uh, It's so important because you will spend so much money trying to get those customers to download your app or to go to your website. And if your conversion there is terrible, you're just wasting money. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you're, you're paying for the top of funnel, and they're falling out of the funnel instantly. It's a huge leaky bucket, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and that can happen even post-onboarding, where, okay, they've finally given you all the information you need, but then they don't know what to do, yeah. <laughs> or they don't know how to get value out of it. And so, um, and, and in some cases, especially in financial services, you probably then paid a lot of vendor costs to KYC them to get their aggregated aggregated data blah 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 and then they just disappear.
0: <laughs> wow. And what does what does and so for the listeners who might not know KYC is know your customer we're Sorry, trying yep. to prevent money laundering. Yep. Well, I guess there's AML which is anti money laundering, but KYC we're trying to do background checks and make sure that this isn't a terrorist organization or a drug dealer or or some not other the person unsafe. you say you are, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fraud, right. Yeah. Um what Uh, how have the unit costs of doing kyc checks changed over the
1: last 10 to 15 years significantly lower right i mean when we started there were one fewer players and depending on the customer base you were going after we weren't very good um especially young customers that were we'd say in the industry thin file right they don't have very much credit history and therefore there's it's typically what they would compare your information you gave them your name your address against to validate it to you so today there's so many more options and they're So Cure is a great example where they're able to pull in not just your credit data, but social data and other public and non-public sources to build a true picture of who you are, and they're able to better capture people across the spectrum. So it's, like most things, it's a lot easier now than it was. (laughs) And that's one area, and I'm curious, this
0: is my perception, I don't know this to be true, but it seems like... KYC and AML processes are far faster in America than overseas in some places. We went to open a bank account for our UK subsidiary mm-hmm. at level, and it was, it was two or three months before we had a bank account because it was <laughs> caught in KYC. Is that just idiosyncratic to us, or is it because
1: it's a, Well, it's, businesses are very different, too, though, right? But, yeah. but I would say, like, the Nordic countries are actually much faster because they okay. have federated IDs, and so you can share that ID across different systems. You ah. just log in with that, and it's boom, it's you, and you have your token, and it's you, and they know it's you, and you just move on. Um, India has moved to a dig- national digital identity as well. So in many cases, we're advanced, but in many cases, we're still behind all. Okay, <laughs> all. Got it's, it, got it. Yeah, I've, I've heard some of that. It's funny, I have a friend who lived in France,
0: worked in Amsterdam, hung out in London a lot, and he got a job in France yeah, he got. I can't remember who he was working for, but I remember he got his first paycheck and he went to open a bank account. And it was like six weeks later, it still wasn't open for some reason. And he downloaded Revolut and he took a picture of his passport, took a picture of his check, and literally had a debit card pushed into his Revolut wallet that he could start spending money. I mean, it was within half hour to an hour. Yeah, yeah. and that I think that's the kind of innovation that's happening right now through these open APIs and through. Um, everything that we were talking about earlier that I think is hard for people to appreciate. I mean, that's a pretty concrete thing and he appreciated it. He didn't necessarily know that it was a KYC check that was happening or anything sure. that was happening on the back end. But that to me is what's exciting seeing the progress we've made on, on those sorts of things.
1: Absolutely. absolutely. So c-
0: you, you've touched on it a little bit and maybe we don't need to go any more deeply into it, but can you speak to how important partnerships with the banks and other players are for, you as honey I think I suspect it's a little different than the move in equation. But
1: yeah, for sure. I mean, so, um, you know, partnerships with banks are critical for, for example, we offer a savings facility for your goals. And we partner with the bank to offer that capability. It's fully FDIC insured, so We couldn't offer that if we didn't partner with the bank. We're starting to add more partners, um, because we very much view an open banking approach to partnership as our way to grow and we want to focus on the service layer where we can help our partner banks grow deposits, open new accounts, and so on. So those partnerships are going to be becoming more important from a product perspective. We can start to implement more products, but also from a growth perspective because we can start to um, sell, if you will, to their customers to create a better, more value-added experience that drives engagement and deposit growth and so on with our partners. So it's, it's going to become more and more a core part of what we do, um, and, and what's great is the banks are looking for solutions like ours. They're trying to, one, most importantly, meet their customer needs. They recognize that they're not doing that today. And two, it's a great way for them to differentiate their, their commodity products candidly. <laughs> so, so what could the banks do to better support this ecosystem? They should push for more open banking standards,
0: right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is counterintuitive to a banker who's been in the business for 20 or 30 years, right? <laughs>
1: for sure. I mean, it, I, the question I was asked them, you know, when we talk to banks and these are, you know, top 5 banks and and credit unions with a billion dollars in assets is, do you think you can build all of the experiences to meet every one of your customer needs? And do you think it's going to be the right experience? Well, in some of those cases it's more can FIS or Fiserv.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and it's so on the, exactly, on the smaller and <laughs> they're
1: like, "Nope." <laughs> um they're we're stuck to our our core vendors. And on the bigger end they're like, "Of course." And then you, you, know, you talk to them six months later, how are you doing on this? Yeah, it's, it's coming. <laughs> um, and It's under budget. It's under budget, yeah, exactly, <laughs> well under budget. Uh, and um, So it's, it's you know, one of those things where it's like, okay, well, what, what do you think is most important to you? Is, is it most important that you focus on the key aspects of your business, which should be the products and the risk, in my opinion? Or is it trying to build every sort of experience that you think is possible, but and then jamming it all into one app, right? And I think the partnership approach is a a much better way to grow. And you know what? Hey, if if you are partnering with somebody and you like what they're doing, if they're small enough, go buy them, right? um, Why not take the risk now on a a partner where it's limited and you can test things out much, much faster, right? You can do partnerships with five, six, seven, eight different fintechs that are solving different problems and see which one wins instead of you spending two years in ideation sessions and then design sessions and then testing and you know yeah absolutely it's just sort of like you know kind of i guess distributed computing versus mainframe (laughs) you know it's like yeah distribute it out and see see what works right yeah absolutely
0: so I, i talked about earlier what a lot of um people coming from banks maybe get wrong on customer experience you're kind of hitting on it there i'd like to flip it though like what do most entrepreneurs get wrong when they
1: try to partner with these banks
0: <laughs> I think that list is bigger than the other one. It's,
1: it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one is that the banks um, are, are designed for partnerships. They're not. And they think that the, the, the people they're working with, while well, the individual they might be talking to is super excited about the idea, he or she has 25 to 45 other people they have to convince that and this And half I, of their job is risk or compliance. <laughs> half of those right? people are there to say no. <laughs> uh, and so I think there's a complete misunderstanding of how, how uh, involved and challenging the sales cycle is and how many decision makers there are um, to get to a yes even on a pilot. Um, and how, you know, frankly, demotivated from an incentive perspective those are. Um, everybody has a, a, a fixed metric they're working towards. Deposit guys working towards number of deposit accounts opened or maybe number of you know, assets under management. The lender is mortgage lending. So again, just how many mortgages am I pumping out? Everyone has a very product-focused silo. And if you have a, a solution that might cross those, just forget it, right? <laughs> You're just going to be there forever. Um, that's a, that's interesting for sure. Yeah.
0: The, the, like you, there's a tendency to want to go across lines of business to become stickier. But it's, the more cooks you have in the kitchen, yeah. the, the more likely you are to get to because only takes one no, as I understand it,
1: right? That's it. And and it's almost what I've seen is success has been better with either going with lots of smaller players mm-hmm. that are more eager to partner um, versus you spending call it eight, nine, ten months with a, a, a big four, or big five, right, or big ten even, right. Yeah. Um, you, you will just burn out, you know, you'll run out of money most likely before.
0: <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because we, we recently at defiance acquired a bond syndication platform that had been built for a large, a super regional bank, I'd call them. And the bank came back to the vendor that built it as consultants for them and said, Hey, we can't support, we, it's really expensive for us to support this. We think you can support it for cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the, the founder of the, the consulting company that built it said, well, look, I'll buy it back from you for a dollar. We'll sign a contract and we'll we'll support it. You'll co-market it with us. Mm-hmm. And I, I heard him tell the story recently because he's now with our, our team. And uh, 18 months later, after they agreed on it, he finally got. And it was a dollar. And it was a dollar. Yeah. No, I mean, it's. It's crazy, and this is something they wanted to do. Like they, and yeah. they already were running. They were already running a five hundred million dollar assets under management, or four billion, or whatever. It's a mind numbing amount of business that they were running through this platform, and it still took eighteen months. So I think that that's very instructive. I like to say about eighteen months. Um, I have two sons. They were. They were. My wife like made them in 18 months. <laughs> Nothing takes 18 months if you can make two humans. But It's true, <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. It's also, it's, I mean, that's why open banking can be so transformative because mm-hmm. it can standardize the way you connect into the banks and it takes a lot of those those no's off the table, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what's the risk program? Well, you have one because it's built into this platform that everybody's using, right? And that's that's the key there is standardize it and then you can open up the possibilities when it's all these one-offs i mean a funny story from moving when we went up to to our bank partner in canada they were one of the questions on the risk assessment was where are your data centers located and we were using aws so it's like virginia northern virginia i think it might change depending on the day (laughs) yeah exactly and they're like well we need to go see it and i was like Here's Amazon's email. <laughs> Please give them a call and see if they let you in. Jeff at Amazon.com. <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> Jeff B. Um, but, you know, and, and things have changed now drastically, right? Cloud is much more common and, and they figured out how to do it. But that's those are some of the hurdles that people just don't even think about, right? Um, yeah.
0: I like to tell a story that was told to me about when Google came in to pitch Android Pay or whatever they were calling it at that time, and they sit down with the B of A execs and... And one of the B of A execs, or maybe it was Wells, one of, the, one of the bank executives says, what are you doing for KYC? And he looks at him and says, well, what's that? <laughs> says, it's know your customer. And the Google Google sales rep or account executive says, we know your customers better than you. And I think that that's a, a sign of the kind of failure. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, KYC, know your customer, might sound like one thing, but it's something very, very specific to bankers. Sure. And a lot of the work we initially did at Level was helping banks adopt and partner with fintechs and earlier stage companies, but eventually it flipped to where we were advising these fintechs on, no, don't say it that way to the bank. Like, this is not the way a banker wants to hear this. (laughs) (laughs) Speak their language. Speak their language. And and that's true of any industry, but my experience has been that banking is more so than any other, other than maybe the military, I think banking is one where where you really have to understand the industry to, Mm -hmm. to make any real traction, or you have to be so completely uh, like the Googles and the apples of the world and just the sheer number of eyeballs that they bring and the experience that they can bring, they yeah. can make a few mistakes and get away with it. But I think a FinTech that's coming in and fighting for your life and trying to, this partnership is going to make or break your company, mm-hmm. do your homework. Please be ready to talk to these bankers and that's hire true. a banker on your staff, which is, <laughs> I applaud Movin for doing that with, <laughs> with you. And I'm sure they probably threw out their DNA. Uh, yeah. like the first 10 employees came out of that banking ecosystem, right? Most part, right. yeah. 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 So was there a moment, a single moment where you knew you had to start HoneyFi?
1: Yeah. I mean, so HoneyFi for, for me personally was born out of a, the challenge my wife and I had, where we were fortunate that we weren't um, day-to-day budgeters, right? We, we, you know, we made good money, but it actually meant we could push off conversations that we should have had earlier around our finances. And It's one of these things, you know, personal finance, especially in a relationship, it's a slow burn, right? There's no one, like, explosion moment where you realize this is something you need to do. My wife and I would have arguments about, were we paying for things equitably? Um, Were we planning for our future together? How much did we want to spend on basics and our child expenses? And those arguments would continue to build and build and build. And then at one point, yes, it did explode. And um, in particular, we were talking about, were we paying for things equitably? I... Pulled this stuff out in Excel, and I said, okay, well, this is what I'm paying, this is what you're paying. It doesn't matter who was right, because I slept on the couch that night. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, when you're 6'1", and you're sitting on a 5'8 IKEA couch, <laughs> very you get, comfortable. you get a lot of time to think. <laughs> um, and uh, it's one of those, I said, look, there's there's got to be a solution out there for uh, couples and young families, focused, as, focused on the challenges that we're facing versus you know, the tools that were out there. And, uh, as I mentioned before, one of the things that we thought we were unique in is that my wife and I didn't merge our finances. We kept our income separate. We kept our accounts separate, doing some research, realized, uh, two thirds of couples merge, right? I think I mentioned that. And we weren't, we weren't unique anymore. <laughs> um, and didn't find any solutions out there that focused on couples. We said, you know what, there's an opportunity for us to build something and there's a huge, huge need, right? there. It's it's an incredibly large market and it's an incredibly challenging problem to solve. I got together with uh, my two co-founders, Joe and Sam. They'd experienced similar things and we said, you know what? Like, we think we have the experience. We've got the opportunity. Let's go after it. That That's great. I
0: always tell people if you can solve your own problem you're... <laughs> I was you're, just trying to
1: prove I was right in an argument. Yeah, and
0: <laughs> Well, well, for me, the first app I ever built was I was I got into running. I was probably 25 years old and I, my my ankle swelled up and my foot swelled up because um, I was running a lot. Mm. And I had no idea that shoes could only last for a certain amount of time. And I went <laughs> to a podiatrist and he's like, yeah, you, those shoes look like they have 500 miles. He's like, at your size, you should only have 200 miles. Oh, and wow. I was like, well, how would I know that? Like, how would I even know what 200 miles is? So I built an app that would just track the runs that I was doing. I, I never commercialized it. I never turned it, was it into pre-Fitbit, man. Pre-Fitbit. Pre- I mean, it was, it was. It turned into Map My Run. It turned into all of these different. Yeah. But, but I, you know, I, I knew how to build it, but I didn't know how to commercialize it yet. But Reward Summit started the exact same way. I, was at a, I, I went to pay for a, a breakfast at my brother's um, bachelor party that I threw for him. And I was like, you know what? I just got a Chase Freedom card, and either that or my Discover card is paying five percent on restaurants right now. And I, and my dad was with us, and, and he's like, yeah, I don't know which one it is. And I, so I start searching for an app to do it, and I couldn't yeah, find one. Yeah. And my dad was like, hmm, if only you knew somebody who could build an app. And that was literally <laughs> how it how it started. So I, I I do think that when you can scratch your own itch, you become sure. patient zero and you can give the feedback, and it's it's, uh, okay. it's it's a really powerful thing. That's cool. I didn't realize that it was born out of that frustration that, that you started Honeyfy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what do you wish you had known earlier that you've learned in starting and scaling a company? I know you learned lessons in movement,
1: but we all know that starting your own, Very it's different. still a
0: completely different <laughs> ballgame.
1: Yeah, I mean, so many lessons. I think one of the ones I always talk about, especially with new founders, is don't be afraid to to take risks and I know that sounds silly Mm -hmm. but quite often you're like you want something to be perfect because you have this idea in your head and and as you said you're trying to solve a problem and you know or you think you know this is what it should look like and you know if we just get it to this point then we'll really start to push and and well we don't want to start to do this because we we might lose customers and you know I think about many decisions we made around for example monetization right we held off on charging for way longer than we should have and we flipped the switch and Lo and behold, people were willing to pay for it, and you know it wasn't as terrible as we thought. it Have was you ever back calculated how much money you would have made? Nope. If you had... Nope. Good. I would. <laughs> I would recommend not doing that. <laughs> we don't look at that. Um, you know, and, and new features that we rolled out, and we're you know now we're much more willing to push out a new feature, and if it works, great, and if it's not perfect, we're okay with that. We continue to refine it, and um, that that lesson you know took us longer to learn than we should have, right? Um, And I think the other one is to make sure that you have uh, co-founders that are in it for the same reasons you are. Um, You know, my co-founders, Joe and Sam, are. are, We we all want to be hyper successful. We want to, you know, raise the unicorn flag here in Charlotte, all that. But the real reason is we all really identified with the problem, and we all are passionate about helping other couples through this. And as you know, a a startup can be great highs and super super lows, and especially they're getting more lows than highs. I feel sometimes. <laughs> um, and if you're in it just for some you know, potential paycheck that might come, it's not the right reason. It won't carry you through the, the long nights as they say. Right. Yeah. Um, and so having partners that are you know, the same mindset and, and making sure you rely on each other for, for that support is incredibly, incredibly important. I think those are both uh, great pieces of advice. Thank you for that. Have you uh, raised any money along the way? We have. Um, we've raised from Angels as well as we went through the Techstars program um, and uh, launch program with Jason Kalkanis as well. well that
0: that's awesome. Are, are you actively raising or going to
1: anytime soon? Or? We, we're getting ready to,
0: yeah. Very cool. And is that, I mean, at what point, so do you, would you classify what you've raised so far? Seed funding, angel funding, how would you? I know it's an amorphous it's like, it's definition. A, yeah,
1: it's a moving target. We try not to name the rounds, but I think where we are from a product perspective is we're we're very confident we have product market fit based on our engagement stats and our usage and onboarding and all that. Um, we also have a monetization model that's working and we're now at the stage where we want to raise money more for growth, right? And we want to validate, okay, these are the different channels that we're going to use for growth, some paid, some partnerships, some affiliate. And, um, that's what this round of money is for. So call it what you will. Um, and it's then a growth end, round. It's yeah. a, <laughs> is
0: it mostly biz dev and marketing type of thing? Or? Yeah, a couple
1: okay. of hires as well. We just we need, need some more bodies um, to take advantage, honestly, of the opportunities that we have. Uh, and then the rest is to growth. Yeah, exactly, biz dev and marketing.
0: So I, I believe you've been pretty involved in kind of the local... I'll call it Queen City FinTech, but there's a there's an umbrella of different organizations that are try, trying to drive FinTech with, within Charlotte. Am, mm-hmm. am I right that you've been pretty involved in, in the process or plugged into that whole ecosystem, emerging ecosystem here?
1: Yeah, no, I, and uh, I love it, right? So I've been a mentor for QC FinTech for four years now, I think. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, mentored a bunch of companies I've come through. I love it because I learn just as much as I as hopefully they learn. <laughs> um, it's funny you mention that. Chris Elmore, uh, the first employee or first
0: or second employee at Avid Exchange, was on the podcast recently, mm-hmm. and he actually teaches entrepreneurship classes. And yeah. he said he learns more than he teaches in in those classes. It's it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing, isn't it?
1: It's it's incredible, right? Because you know, while you might have a certain area of expertise, you learn just so many more that you know other people are bringing in. Um, I'm also part of a group called Finsiders where we put on, uh, it's, it's essentially a, a educational organization where we put on events, um, usually six or seven a year uh. and including two, uh, excuse me, one large event that brings in, uh, three to 400 people in person.
0: Was that Avid, at Avid last year? It was at Avid and last Rewis year. announced their name officially at that event. I, they I did. think it was at that. Yeah, they that's did. great. Yeah,
1: it was a big reveal. Um, this year we Terrible did. Terrible name
0: by the way, but. I'm just kidding, true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but they chose purple, so we like purple at HoneyFi. So, well, the,
0: the, do you think they chose that because that means that their Zell, um, <laughs> <laughs> their Zell integration will be on brand, like for Ally Bank?
1: Or I, I think it's because they want to partner with HoneyFi. No. Okay. <laughs> um, it's HoneyFi, not Zell. Okay, yeah, no worries. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, But yeah, this year we went virtual. We we brought in almost a thousand people. Um, oh, wow. From and we were able to bring in global speakers because we went virtual. So, um, yeah, but yeah, and then just try to you know like anyone like you do right. Try to be available to the community. You've been really great with us and giving us advice and feedback. So um you know we try to model ourselves after people like you. Oh well, thank you. I appreciate that. Look, you you have to pay it forward. If people paid it forward
0: for me, or I wouldn't have been able to do half the things I did. And I think anybody who's a reasonably smart human knows that, like, this is just how you do it, and I think that's the thing that most attracted me to Charlotte was I feel like there's a pay it forward attitude from the business leaders in mm-hmm. in, in this community for sure. Absolutely, yeah. So, other than Queen City FinTech and FinCider, which you're obviously involved with, are there other resources in Charlotte that that you'd like to plug?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, there are a couple others. So obviously, there's a the Carolina Fintech Hub, which is really trying to promote fintech in the region, uh, mm-hmm. the broader region. Um, there's uh, Innovate Charlotte, um, which is run by another great uh, founder, Keith Ludeman. Mm-hmm. Um, He's where, great, yep. it, yeah, yeah, uh, and they're really they're beyond fintech, so they will help support entrepreneurs in in any industry, um, and they bring in. I think it's a rolling class. I'm not sure, to be honest, but they they assign different mentors to you, and it's based off the MIT model that uh, they've sort of franchised out for free, but they franchised out into other markets, which is really interesting. Oh, that's great. So what advantages does Charlotte have for fintech companies? So oh, a lot, right? So I, I think, as you mentioned, hopefully now this is less so, but people don't know that Charlotte's a banking <laughs> <laughs> center, right? I think that's becoming more and more
0: the, the secret's out. Uh, yeah,
1: for <laughs> sure. More and more known. Um, and that's, that's a huge advantage when you're hiring talent, right? Um, quite often, you, you'd hire talent and have to teach them about financial services. And here, you can hire talent that already knows about it. You can t- tell them about KYC or know your customer. Yeah. Or you know, you're not building just a social chat app you're building, you know, something where people are actually putting in data that needs to be secured. So being able to hire the right talent is, is important. Uh, the cost is much lower here to run your business. There's um, a website called um, vcarbitrage.com, I think. And essentially they'll talk about, okay, a million dollars in San Francisco is equivalent to X in different markets. And in Charlotte, it's roughly 1.4 or 1.3, right? And a lot of that's real estate. A lot of that's talent costs, tax breaks and things like that. So, you know, as an investor, you should hey, I can put a million here or I put a million here and it's equivalent to 1.4. You know, and as an entrepreneur, well, where's my money going to last longer? Right? Yep. Um, it's interesting because, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, Revolution
0: uh, Capital. Yes. Uh, Steve they, Case's. Steve stuff. Case's, yeah. And they, they raised a fund specifically called Rise of the Rest because mm-hmm. they realized that innovation can happen anywhere. And especially in lower cost, lo- lower cost cities. And they led a $20 million round in Igor Jabliko's new company called Prion, mm-hmm. um, they're based out of Raleigh, but yeah, uh, it, yeah. I, I think I think people are starting to realize that you don't have to be in San Francisco to have to have good ideas. It helps. There's no doubt that they have, sure there are massive advantages to being in Silicon Valley or in San Francisco, but you don't have to be there.
1: And I think COVID is sort of proving that. Right? There's a mass exodus. Yep. Whether it's permanent or temporary, we'll see. Um, but I think the tools we have today for remote work and and candidly, that you can now find talent in other markets that are just as good um, is going to be interesting to see what happens. Right? I, I think you know it's not like San Francisco is going to go away or the Valley is going to go away. Obviously, it's it's got so much going for it and a lot of capital, which helps. Um, but I I think you're starting to see. I just take a look at the launch uh, companies that have gone through the launch program. There was only one in our class from San Francisco. Um, in the last two classes, I think there are only three or four, right? And wow, the rest wow. have been outside. So um, it's changing. Yep. It's, you know, it's good. What, what our challenges does Charlotte face? So it's sort of the reverse of the coin, right? So um, hmm. it's lower cost and there are fewer people and it's a better lifestyle, but there are fewer people <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you have to kind of, you know, work your network a little bit harder to find those folks. But again, I think companies here more so than other places like like uh the Bay Area or New York are open to remote workers. Right, Honeyfy we ha- we have remote folks, right? Um well yes our core is here in Charlotte. We have folks in SF, we have somebody in Chicago. Um and so you just learn to adapt your business around that. And the others around the fundraising cycles. So a lot of what drives the early early investments, uh, angel style uh, angel stage investments is former entrepreneurs, and the Bay Area and New York have had many more cycles of successful exits where those entrepreneurs then reinvest in other entrepreneurs, and, and that cycle Have you continues. read about the Trillion Dollar Company? Uh, no. it's, it's all about Fairchild
0: Semiconductor, and that ended up, Fairchild ended up turning into, like, the people that came out oh. of Fairchild let, launched Intel and launched uh, gotcha, Sequoia gotcha. Capital. And <laughs> ultimately, like they can trace the lineage to it. It's over a trillion dollars wow. of market cap uh, from and it's it's higher by now because Uber is part of that. And there, there's some other really, yeah, really yeah. big companies. But it was I think it was four or five years ago that they published it, maybe even longer ago than sure. that. And they literally were able to map out a trillion dollars of market cap that came out of the tree. That's from incredible. Fairchild. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully we'll have that soon, right? Uh, yeah, hope, that's what I keep hoping. Hopefully it's Avid Exchange or it's Red Ventures or it's yeah. Passport. or and the re- Realistically, it's probably more like a combination of three or four of those. I came from D.C. where AOL was what did it. Mm. For, I mean, D.C. has a very, very much more diversified economy in many ways than we do here. Um, but just you think about everything that came out of AOL and, and all of the money that uh, – revolution is funneled because revolution steve case you know that's Mm -hmm. uh, you you can trace a direct lineage to quite a bit and i'm hopeful that we have something like that in 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 charlotte here and i I think there's enough good companies now that maybe it isn't imminent that's that one of these is going to happen but Mm -hmm. i think that it's a matter of five to ten years before you get that real snowball of of uh for sure and 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 where you no longer are relying on saying, Hey, Charlotte's almost there. It's nowhere here. There's, there's money, there's talent. You know, there's Absolutely. no reason not to be here. I, I I'm
1: with you. That's why I'm here. Right. Yep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned, um, you mentioned COVID as a broader trend of maybe we're moving from big cities to smaller cities, but has COVID directly changed any of your plans or your
1: growth? Um, a little bit. So um, we, Initially paused our, our earlier funding round just because with COVID, it was just sort of everybody was on hold, right? Every investor we talked to was like, hey, my portfolio just evaporated hmm. um, and I'm having to like, figure out how to homeschool my kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, so come back. <laughs> um, and and uh, from a partnership perspective, we had some things going with some distribution partners. Um, for example, in the wedding space where uh, when COVID hit, all of those were put on. All weddings were put on hold, and so as a result, that company was having to scramble to figure out what to do. Um, those are starting to to come back online, if you will. Um, but there was definitely a bit of a slowdown. But I'm I'm proud of our team. We we worked hard to to go after other channels. We we improved a lot of our content marketing to continue to push, and that was actually an opportunity that we were able to take advantage of where. We did some studies on COVID and budgeting and the impact that it's having on couples, and that got us different articles, and that kept our growth trajectory the way we needed it. Um, So, you know, those are probably the two bigger Mm -hmm. things impacted. Uh, You know, personally, I have three young kids, and um, them being at home because daycares were closed and school was closed was challenging for the first forever uh but <laughs> well, yeah now my
0: 11 uh, year old needed help in a computer science uh problem that he was solving yeah. it
1: was one of my proudest proudest dad moments like it's that's uh, all i'm okay. waiting for that moment. <laughs> 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 now it's like how do you navigate this canvas thing you know yeah, like, yeah, exactly um but you know i think i think it's also creating opportunity there are um there's more talent available now than there, there has been in a long time mm-hmm. because so many companies have had to unfortunately furlough employees or let go of employees. And we're, we're trying to take advantage of that as well.
0: Excellent. Well, look, Rami, this has been great. I really appreciate you joining me and congratulations on on all of the success. I, I want to talk to you again after you raise this next round of funding <laughs> or your IPO or whatever's next. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks for having me and thanks for doing what you do for the community. All right. No, no, thank you for that. Cheers. All right.